This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, March the 10th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. I think I stumbled over my own name there. That's probably a bad omen for the next couple of hours. Coming up on the show today, the news panel will discuss the current state of food inflation. Top grocery executives appeared before a parliamentary committee early or this week, so we'll have some clips and some reaction. Elon Musk, he's in more hot water following a Twitter exchange with an employee. Spoiler alert, Elon Musk accused the employee of faking a disability, so that's not good. And is renovating a government building worth the money and time? We'll hammer that one out as Ontario considers some renovations to Queen's Park and as the federal government continues to work on the halls of Parliament. But the show begins with the top story of the day, and it's the February job numbers. Stats Canada is out with those this morning. The Canadian economy added 22,000 jobs last month, which holds the unemployment rate steady at 5%. That news broke a couple of minutes ago. There will be some analysis for you on Monday. Over to a federal story. A federal court judge has approved a $2.8 billion settlement between the Canadian government and 325 First Nations whose members went to residential day schools. Karen Rebo has the story. Justice Anne-Marie McDonald calls it fair, reasonable, historic and transformational. In issuing her ruling of approval yesterday, she said the settlement reached in January is not intended to put a value on the losses suffered by the banned class members, nor does it release the government from future lawsuits related to children who died or disappeared at residential schools. She said it's intended to help take steps to reverse the losses of language, culture and heritage. The settlement now goes into an appeal period after after which the money would be transferred to a not-for-profit fund managed by a board of Indigenous leaders. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. In other federal news, the Liberal government has tabled legislation to alter terrorism laws that have blocked Canadian humanitarian aid from reaching Afghanistan. The bill would make a carve-out in the criminal code for Canadian aid workers to work in places controlled by unfriendly governments. Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino explains the intention behind the bill. This bill meets the urgency of the moment, creating a streamlined process, giving NGOs like the Canadian Red Cross the flexibility that they need to help those in need in Afghanistan. International Development Minister Harjit Sajjan says the bill is sorely needed. Women and girls are deprived of access to education, employment, and even the most basic human rights. So let me be especially clear here. This is a gender apartheid and it must stop. Save the Children's Danny Glenwright said the bill was needed months ago, but can have a real impact if Parliament passes it quickly. This is meaningful for the moms who are desperate right now and have had to consider things like child marriage for their young daughters. Uh, This is a huge first step and we need to move fast to make it actually happen. 
coming back to the economy. I told you this would become a talking point with the Bank of Canada holding its interest rates while the U.S. Federal Reserve may raise theirs. Bank of Canada Senior Deputy Governor Carolyn Rogers reflected on what might happen to the value of the Canadian dollar. If, uh, if our dollar depreciates, um, particularly against the currencies of our key trading partners, that means imports coming into the country are more expensive. That can put upward pressure on inflation. If that happens, that'll have to get built into our forecast. And one more story for you. I don't always share product, product recall stories, but when it involves keeping your drinks cold, especially on a Friday, I feel obliged. Yeti is recalling several types of coolers because of defective magnets. Lisa Dwyer has the story. Yeti has recalled 1.9 million coolers and gear cases because magnets can become detached, posing a risk of serious injury or death. The recall affects the Sidekick Dry Gear Case, the M20 Soft Backpack Cooler, and the M30 Soft Cooler version 1.0 and 2.0. The coolers and gear bags were sold from March 2018 to January 2023. If swallowed, two or more of the high-powered magnets can attract to each other or to another metal object and get stuck in the digestive system. The Consumer Product Safety Commission says consumers should immediately stop using the four recalled products and contact Yeti for refund information. I'm Lisa Dwyer. Oh yeah, nothing like digesting a couple of magnets. Sounds super, super appetizing. That's the news. Here are the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you vote on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. Yesterday I asked you, Equifax data shows that total credit card debt in Canada is over $100 billion. I asked you, what's your preferred payment method for day-to-day -day expenses? 30% of you said credit card, 50% of you said debit card, 0% of you said mobile devices, so no Apple Pay or using your watch to pay for things, and 20% of you said cash, cold, hard cash. That sweet, sweet quiche. 20% of you are uh, clearly my friends. Let's get to a couple responses here. John writes in on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Credit card and then pay it off immediately. Points, baby. Points. Thank you to John for writing that in. And John is absolutely right. There's a nice way to leverage some credit card points if you can pay that thing right off immediately and don't carry a balance. So at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on Twitter. Today's daily poll, much lighter fare. Do you make small talk in elevators with strangers? Yes or no? I can tell I'm onto something with this question, though, because I've already had some response from our crew off the air, including Eliza Rocco, who popped by the studio to say, only if they have a dog. Because if they have a dog and you make small talk with them, you might get to pet the dog. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. In fact, I probably execute that strategy as well. I'm sort of a hey or a hey, how's it going person. And if the person gives me a thoughtful response, I will make some effort to engage in small talk. But I don't know, a, a simple hey, how's it going? Have a nice day. That, I wouldn't call that small talk. That, that, that's humanitarian greetings. So that, that's my standard, that, that, that's, that's, my, that's my baseline. But I will make small talk if someone engages me. Alex Smythe, what about you? 
Yeah, Dave, I'm not gonna really go out of my way to create small talk, uh, especially it's like a lot of the elevators I'm in, like the one I'm in most common is when I come to the office, it's literally one floor that we're going. So there's not even a lot of time for small talk. But I will typically what I'll do is I'll do the head nod if there's a response and I'll be like, hey, how's it going? Or, or you know, just hi, if there's no response, and it's just the head nod, and that's it. That's an e easy indication. Okay, I can I can move on, you know, there, there's, they're not responding to me in any way. But yeah, in, in terms of like doing full blown small talk conversations, it's rare. But you know, if, if I'm feeling like particularly social or, or just like, you know, uh, bubbly, I guess I, I, I will try to engage with somebody. But yeah, more often than not, you know, I'm 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 happy enjoying the silence in the elevator, you know, especially if it's just a short trip up one or two two floors. Yeah, I work on a second floor and I live on a second floor. So not a lot of overall elevator time for me to make that small talk. And context matters. If I'm on vacation, I'm at a hotel, you know, you're in vacation oh, yeah. mode. You're yeah. relaxed. You're going to chill. Maybe, like, be a little bit extra. Oh, you know, where you're coming from? Oh, what are you in town for? You know, little things like that from time to time. The the one area where it's a mixed bag for me is, let's say you're in a downtown core and you're in a big corporate building, a corporate high-rise, and... Uh, you know, you're going to visit a friend in an office or maybe in, in your case, Alex, uh, you and I worked in the field making making uh, features for television shows mm -hmm. for a long time. So you find yourself on these 20, 25 floor elevator rides. And back in the summer of 2014, I was in Vancouver visiting uh, my lawyer friend at his very hoity-toity fancy law office. And I had a couple boxes of Cartem's donuts, but I was also dressed like absolute trash. Cargo shorts, ripped t-shirt, probably had stains all over it, probably smelt a little bit like uh, booze as well you know the, the typical dave brown vacation uh, look and i'm on this elevator and i'm just schmoozing and talking and blue blah 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 blue and apparently it was the uh, talk of the building for uh, days on end who was that guy with the donuts who felt like it was his place to chat with a bunch of uh, high-ranking lawyers from the vancouver area so uh, so i made quite the impression that day making small talk Nice. Well, hey, as long as, you know, there was no impact on, on a negative impact towards your friend being associated with you if they had that negative uh, idea of it. But hey, you get people talking, Dave, you know what, you're you're in and out, you're, you're living your best life. You know, it's it's up for other people to decide. But yeah, I agree. Context is super important, like vacation. So oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be chatting up, you know, typically, there'll be a drink in hand or whatever, you're going to the beach or coming back from the beach. Things like that, that's very, very different. But it's like in the day-to-day, -day, yeah, it's, you know, I, if I'm up early, if I'm I'm getting to work, the last thing I want to do is talk. I'm not really a morning person. Maybe if it's like, <laughs> you know, you know, end, end of day, like half-day Friday kind of thing, you're feeling the vibe, you're just heading home for the weekend. Yeah, you know, you might be a bit more engaged than normal. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, the, the con context matters. But I would say my general baseline is I will say something. I, I rarely sit there in total silence. But, uh, yeah, you got to engage me first if I'm going to make this true small yeah. talk. Alex, thank you for this. We'll check in with you a little bit later in the show. In the meantime, you can vote at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. And if you do find me in an elevator, feel free to make some small talk. Alex is here with the National Weather Updates. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where there's freezing rain changing to snow around noon. There's up to four centimeters of snow expected. There's also wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. 
The high is zero, but feeling like minus 10. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, there's clouds rolling in with a chance of snow in the afternoon. The high is two degrees. The wind chill makes it feel like minus seven. In Montreal, Quebec, it's a mix of sun and clouds. The high is zero and the wind chill makes it feel like minus nine. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's overcast today. The high is minus one, feeling like minus 12. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy. The snow has already started to fall in Burlington. Expected to start this morning in Toronto. Up to 10 centimeters is expected to fall today. The high is minus one. It's going to be feeling like minus eight. Boo, no more snow. Well, Dave, this is such a, a, a changing um, a weather pattern that I literally put in the weather. Oh, it's supposed to start in the afternoon. And then I literally went out, uh, upstairs, looked outside. It's already snowing. And I had to update the weather because the snow is already here. They still, so have, it, they it, still it, haven't finished clearing the snow from last weekend. I, I know. So you expect there to be quite a bit more. So 10 <sighs> centimeters today, maybe up to five centimeters overnight into tomorrow. So it's going to be... Uh, a heavy snow uh, Friday into Saturday. Over to Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds, no snow in the forecast for them. The high is minus three, and the wind chill makes it feel like minus 16. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow this morning. The high is minus two, and feeling like minus 12. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow this afternoon. The high is minus eight, feeling like minus 23 with that wind chill. In Calgary, Alberta, it is mainly cloudy, chance of snow this morning, and the snow is going to definitely start around noon, up to five centimeters is set to fall. The high is minus 11, but with that wind chill, it'll be more like minus 22. There is also a fog advisory in effect for the area. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds, and there is also a chance of some snow in the forecast. The high is minus six, feeling like minus 22 today. Up in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, it's sunny with clouds and light snow expected in the afternoon. The high is minus 11, feeling like minus 26. As we make our way over to BC, we'll start in Vancouver where it's cloudy and a chance of rain in the morning, but that will become a mix of sun and clouds in the afternoon and the high will be nine degrees. And finally in Victoria, BC, there's gonna be rain in the morning and then that's going to transition to a mix of uh, sun and clouds in the afternoon. The high is also going to be 9 degrees today. That's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, it's news panel time. We discuss the current state of food inflation after Canada's top grocery executives appeared before a parliamentary committee. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back it's now with dave brown on ami it's friday that means we assemble the weekly news panel and that means that joita gupta and michelle mcquigger here hello joita hey dave good morning and hello to michelle good morning guys so three topics on deck beginning with a topic that we've uh, circled around quite a bit over the course of the last 12 months but always worth revisiting canada's top grocery executives appeared before a parliamentary committee this week i've got some clips here i'm going to play them 
without comment until we make comments, but I will make the same joke that I made yesterday. You take these clips with however many grains of salt you prefer or can afford based on current <laughs> prices. Here's, wah, wah. Yeah, wah, wah. Here's Loblaw CEO Galen Weston. Food prices have increased 25 times faster than profits. And at Loblaw, none of those profits came from higher food margins. Here's Empire President Michael Medline. I am not going to throw our supplier partners under the bus. They are also doing their best in extraordinary times. They are greatly impacted by rising costs, which unfortunately they are forced to pass on to retailers. Medline elaborated further. We at Empire are not profiting from inflation. It doesn't matter how many times you say it, write it or tweet it. It is simply not true. The truth is we are at the end of a very long food supply chain that has economic inputs at every step and stage. Going into the session, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh voiced his issue with the current grocery landscape in Canada. At a time when Canadians are struggling with their groceries, parents are wondering if they can afford the food that their kids need. They go into a grocery store, pick up items, look at the price and put it back on the shelf. At a time when Canadians are going through that, these CEOs are making the record bonuses and highest profits they've ever made. Michelle, as I mentioned, this is a topic that we've talked about a lot over the course of the last 12 months, but it's a topic that's always worth revisiting. What do you want to explore in this conversation? Yeah, I mean, we've, t we've touched a lot on a lot of inflationary topics, but diving into groceries seemed like a good chance now in light of the fact that the CEOs were called to just to supposedly to provide some answers this week. And you, you heard what they said. And like, honestly, that's that really well sums up the position. Those clips he played sums up the arguments they made is that th these th these are issues beyond their control. Meanwhile, inflation has been Grocery inflation has been going up 11% or more for the past 10 months. So it's a wild increase. It's one that I suspect by now has reached absolutely everyone, no matter where they shop, no matter their socioeconomic bracket. And now that we're at the point of trying to find out some answers and desperately looking for some light at the end of this particular tunnel, I thought it would be a good chance to sort of see what we're making of those answers as we're hearing them so far. Michelle, you give that number 11%, and the added context on that is that as inflation generally has cooled, food inflation has remained mm -hmm. incredibly high to the point that it's pretty much double the baseline inflation rate right now. So it certainly implies that whatever arguments are made economically about the overall chain, it's still outpacing the rest of generalized inflation. So again, th th these are all important contextual numbers. Joita, what did you take away from this session did you learn anything from this session? Did it shed any light on why these grocery bills are so high? Well, I mean, um, in one sense, it, you didn't really learn anything new. Uh, there's a lot of evidence, as you pointed out, to show that grocery bills are very high and has by now, the price of groceries have by now outstripped and outpaced uh, the, the increases in inflation. And then you've got the CEOs of the major grocery chains denying that they're profiting from inflation in any way. Again, that's not very surprising either. What they said and what I hadn't known was that at least according to the CEOs, they're, um, they're claiming that the increase is owing to non-food products. Mm -hmm. So things like Shoppers Drug Mart or um, you know Joe, the Joe Fresh line or financial services because these chains lump together a bunch of things. They're saying it's not food prices that were profiting off of. If you see that our profits have gone up, it's because of all of these other non-food items. 
And that sounds like a really compelling argument, except when you go and look at their financial statements, there isn't a shred of evidence to back this up. And by that, I mean that the financial segments, uh, statements aren't actually seg segmented, um, and there's no way of knowing whether a portion of the percentage came from groceries, uh, whether a portion of the profits came from financial services or something else. And if you don't have that information, it's really hard to figure out whether the CEOs are being honest or if they're just lying in this situation. And I don't know if this committee has the authority to compel the CEOs to hand over that sort of segmented data. So again, in terms of the discourse, we're not hearing anything that we I think that is surprising, but I think it is worth knowing that there's a lack of transparency in terms mm. of how these profits have actually come about. And I think this committee has brought that particular issue to light, but whether the committee in turn has the authority or the power to actually do something about it is a whole other question. So Joita, what you're voicing is something that David McDonald from the Center for Policy Alternatives voiced earlier this week. I actually played those clips on the show in one of my news reports saying that this was ultimately what, what you're saying in terms of a more transparent look at their books is what this committee would actually need or what the Competition Bureau would actually need, but they don't actually have the authority to compel mm -hmm. a, a, a publicly traded private business to open their books like that uh, without going through some other significant legal mechanisms that would be things like antitrust or or other or other uh, other more significant charges that would also bring in the Justice Department as well. So, it, it, but you're absolutely right to identify there was something about a semantic argument that was being made uh, on Wednesday night when these uh, executives were there because they are they are right to a certain degree in their semantics mm -hmm. that says, hey, listen every year our gross revenues are going to go up that every year is because that, that's how the economy works like like in the year 1000 versus the year 2023 there's always going to be an inflationary pressure where our gross revenues go up but some of the semantics then get into where the profit margins lie and maybe what well, joita's and maybe what joita's identifying is potentially why they've diversified their businesses so much making clothing lines and financial services and selling pharmaceuticals etc cetera, etc cetera, to offset what might not be the most profitable thing in the world. But again, these, these are all just sort of speculations. I, I do have some empathy for the argument. They do fall at the end of a very complicated supply chain where costs and inputs do go up all the time. But the fact is, when you're at the grocery store and you continue to see prices that have essentially doubled for you over the course mm -hmm. of a year with regular significant monthly increases, it does make you think, my gosh, is this is food the thing that's actually driving inflation? It's not mm -hmm. energy prices, it's not housing prices. Is the food actually the motor, the thing that we all need to buy every day to survive? Sorry, Michelle, big long preamble for me to get to. What did you make of the arguments that were being made on Wednesday night? <laughs> no, no problem. Honestly, Joita, um, it's like we were watching it together. Same reactions, really. I, I, I felt this did not go, go any way, really, to shedding much light on matters. Uh, the arguments that were put forward, Dave, I'm with you in that, yes, it is more simple than a lot of headlines and commentary would have one believe. We've seen f terms like greedflation floating around, those lovely Franken terms that I hate so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my um, gosh. Bare minimum Mondays. Don't get me how upset I was about that becoming a feature story this week oh, across what? so many oh. news services. 
Hi. Anyway, um, so yeah, it's not as simple as some of the narratives would suggest, but the fact is there are a lot of narratives out there that I was sort of hoping that perhaps CEOs would have an opportunity to to, to address or debunk or, or go some way to settling. And I don't really feel that advanced the conversation. They were very clearly all singing from the same song sheet. Um, Joita raises such really good points about the, the transparency, and I'm sure we're going to come back to, to that in, in a later segment. But you know, they could have come prepared to disclose some of those numbers if they wanted to make those arguments. None of that took place. So I felt that after those sessions, we were left really no further ahead in, trying, in terms of trying to understand exactly what was going on here. Because, yeah, we, we are those con- contextual numbers you offered up, Dave, in terms of how grocery inflation is outpacing inflation more broadly are really striking. And I don't feel like we have any further answers on that question. Yeah, one, one last piece of context here. Um, I didn't get a chance to put the clip into this script today, but one of the representatives of the Independent Association of Grocers uh, came out yesterday and also had a very similar uh, tune that was being sung here in regards to uh, the way in which the grocery store, the retail location is the last line of a lot of financial inputs. So it's not just the big three grocers who are who are mm-hmm. singing this tune. It's even the independent grocers as well that are saying this as well. Again, just little and pieces of context. And I don't mean to context. imply that it's an accurate tune, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, like you said before, that's true. They are the end of the supply chain in that sense. There are several factors beyond their control. There are a lot of international factors beyond anyone's control right now, uh, Ukraine among others. But yeah, in terms of laying out the process and providing some concrete answers to understand the issue. For me, I didn't get those answers. Let's hold Jagmeet Singh for just a second. Let's stay here in the realm of solutions or our observations. Joita, based off of whether it be your personal experience, some of the research that you've done, or the the parliamentary committee that was held this week, what would you like to see done at any level to address some of these high food prices? Well, there's a couple of things that are possible. One of them, of course, is to go back and look at what we've done in the past in the 1970s when grocery prices were really high. At that point, you saw the government considering and even bringing in some amount of price controls on food. And we may have to go that route if this situation isn't brought under control, especially when we think about essentials. I'm not just talking about fruit and vegetables, which is, of course, important. And we have all been stung by the $7 cauliflower and and, and decided not yeah. to buy it. Uh, but I think also essentials like cooking oil, rice, uh, flour. So all of these things are also going going to get more and more expensive. Of course, the downside with any sort of price control, uh, and that's the bitter pill that we might have to swallow, is that it, it in- inevitably puts pressure on supply and results in food shortages. So I don't know if price controls are really the best option here, but it's certainly something to consider. At least that was what was considered in the 1970s. And then I have, of course, um, also in the past talked about creating some kind of a targeted subsidy program for some of these food essentials. Like I've outlined the vegetables, oils, and the rices and the flowers, maybe bring in some kind of targeted government subsidy program just to ensure that Canadians are able to afford the staples. Um, And then in more long-term, I do think we might want to think about why it is that we basically got three, uh, three companies running the grocery land, running the grocery uh, or being responsible for the majority of grocery uh, delivery and and, and supply in Canada. I know there's a plethora of chains, but when you actually go back and look at it, it, they're all owned by the same 
three or four companies. Joy, Joy, to, may, Joy to may, may I interrupt? And I'll actually, I'll actually, mm -hmm. I'll actually give you the statistic: sixty-one percent of every grocery dollar spent in Canada goes to those three companies. Wow, that's right. So that's just you know. So then there's a, a question there to be asked, just as, just as we might want to ask in, in relation to cell phones and public and and, and and other utilities. Why it is that we have so few players in the market, and whether we would be we would benefit from more competition? And the last one that I'll try out by way of solution, and I've always been a big fan of urban agriculture and uh, and people trying to have rooftop gardens or other ways to cultivate their own food. I know it's not always feasible for people to have a backyard or a garden where they can grow their own food. Admittedly, if you're in that position, kudos to you. But for a lot of us, we're living in apartments and condos, so looking at creative ways to bring in some urban, urban agriculture so people can start to grow some of their own food, at least for part of the year, might not be the, the be-all and end-all in terms of solutions, but it might certainly be something that's worth considering. Michelle, Juita ran down a lot of what I would offer there. I would just say, in mm -hmm. general, I would follow what British Columbia did this week, which is to try and bolster, invest and bolster domestic food production. So if you're going to be at the back end of supply chains, maybe take oceans out of it and try to do as yeah. much as you can. Like, take shorten oceans and chains. borders out yeah. of it, shorten the chains. So I would say an invest a significant investment in domestic food production would be a big part of that for me. And I would would at least uh, consider what Juita was talking about there in regards to if we're going to have three gargantuan companies doing the majority of grocery business in this country, what are some regulations that can be put in place there in regards to profiteering? But again, as it currently stands, these are private companies, they're publicly traded, they can make however much money they want to, but maybe we have to start considering where food lands into the profiteering business, kind of like how maybe we should talk about housing in that way too. Uh, Michelle, <laughs> What about you? Yeah, no, I, I mean, you guys are, I have really said a lot of it. And what I love is that none of you have gone down the two most common roads that I hear discussed more broadly around this. Um, the, the competition angle, sort of, in that people have flagged this as a potential issue and the Competition Bureau is, in fact, looking at this. And we're expected to see a report on that in the spring. I believe it's in June, yes. if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, so that should be interesting. But I think we've also uh, seen some the extent and the limits of the Competition Bureau's power through the recent Rogers-Shaw drama. So that will be interesting, but not necessarily a, a, a solution coming out of that. However, uh, the other solution I see floated all the time, uh, which is interesting because it doesn't really relate to this issue specifically, is a grocery code of conduct. Um, a lot of that's in the works. This is something that the grocers have indicated that they're, that they're being worked on, that the government's working on. Um, but what's interesting about that is that it doesn't actually go any way to checking food prices per se what it would do in theory at least is address some of those transparency concerns we talked about before in terms of financial disclosures and where those profits come from so i i, I kind of love the fact that none of you hit those familiar notes that to me wouldn't necessarily tackle the problem the solutions you mm -hmm. guys are putting forward seem a lot more practical to me in terms of subsidies i really like the idea of bolstering the domestic chain as well and, and shortening the route to the grocery shelves let's finish on jagmeet singh because he has been on this file hard for about nine months now and this parliamentary committee this week i think is something that he was took quite some pride in whether or not he mm -hmm. called it directly he was deeply influential in putting it together yeah, he even took the place of the usual committee member for the ndp on this one he, he sat there personally yeah he sure did. Joita, what do you make of the high-profile involvement of Jagmeet Singh in this uh, committee this week? 
Well, it's not surprising. I mean, as you said, he's been identified very closely with this issue. Um, it is a requirement of being in the office, opposition uh, to try and hold government to account and to try and show that you're acting on behalf of the of the little guy um, as opposed to corporate interests. That's always been the NDP's uh, mainstay. And this is one of the bread and butter issues that the NDP traditionally would and, and has taken up. Uh, I say unlike the... Um, the conservatives where they wouldn't really see Pierre Poilievre talking about um, greedflation or grocery prices going up in the, in the same way, because typically conservatives have always argued for um, leaving things up to the market and, you know, that the market will regulate itself. So you can't really see them um, talking about needing to rein in profiteering on the part of some of the grocery chains. So I'm not at all surprised uh, that Jagmeet Singh has been as unrelenting uh, as he has been. But it's also not, it's not that unusual. This is typically the kind of issue that the NDP more often than not gets behind. It's table stakes. It's 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 good politics. It's table stakes. It relates to people. It's it's one that is top of mind for so many people right now. It it makes sense. And it, it's it's a good political win for Jagmeet Singh because the federal government, although they've collaborated with the NDP on things like daycare and are collaborating on things like pharmacare, the liberals are sort of calling that a win for themselves without necessarily mm -hmm. the NDP getting those wins. So it makes it makes Jagmeet Singh appear like someone who's deeply connected to the pocketbook issues of Canadians and great politicians connect to pocketbook issues. Michelle, what do you make of Jagmeet Singh's high-profile uh, presence this week? Yeah, I took it in a similar way. And I'm not remotely surprised that he's been championing the issue. As Joita said, this is absolutely dead center in the target of the NDP wheelhouse here. What I was a bit surprised by was the extent of Jagmeet Singh's involvement. But to me, it makes a certain amount of sense in that I suspect that he might have taken some knocks in some circles for the confidence and supply agreement that's currently in place with the Liberals. I wonder if there's any sense of maybe losing some political cachet or losing some of their own identity because the Liberals are so firmly in charge, putting Jagmeet Singh front and center on an issue like this that is deeply relevant to Canadians of all walks of life. I'm with you, Dave. It's, it's good politics. It's an interesting move on in, in that sense too, I think, try to maintain his profile. Uh, he has made some other noises recently about conditions under which the confidence and supply agreement could be jeopardized. So I think there is an element at play here where he's trying to sort of assert some uh, some autonomy and authority in, yeah. in one fell swoop. NDP MPs were not invited to the press conferences in Manitoba or Saskatchewan, where those provinces announced uh, in the last seven days that they would be getting the National Child Care $10 a day program going by April the 1st of this year. The, even, even though that was an NDP idea, it was, it was, mm -hmm. liber, it was liberal ministers who, mm -hmm. were at, who were at those press conferences. So you have to start looking for more wins when somebody's taking your wins from you. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's it for this one. Coming up next, Elon Musk. You know him. And you also know that he likes to find himself in hot water. Well, he's in more of it after a Twitter exchange with an employee where he essentially accused the employee of faking a disability. Yeah, not good. Not good. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joyda Gupta. Let's jump into our next topic. So stop me if you've heard this before. 
Elon Musk faced some public backlash this week. Okay, Stop. let's go, yeah, let's go to break. Let's go to break. <laughs> yeah. um, the the Twitter owner responded to a tweet of an employee who could not figure out if they'd actually been laid off. Elon eventually had this to say about Haralder Thorleifsson, quote, the reality is that this guy who is independently wealthy did no actual work, claimed as his excuse that he had a disability that prevented him from typing, yet was simultaneously tweeting up a storm. Can't say I have a lot of respect for that, close quote. And that was the tone where Elon would have said that too. Uh, Thorleifsson revealed that he has muscular dystrophy. So uh, Musk has since apologized. But Joita, what jumps out to you about this topic? Well, I think there's an obvious angle about what this means for disability inclusion in the workplace. But besides that, just the sheer unprofessionalism of this whole exchange leaps right? out at me. Not only was he was the the person who was let go of Thorlison unable to get a hold of the human resources department at Twitter, that's necessitating having to tweet at his boss uh, to get some kind of response. But then this whole exchange devolves into a back and forth. There's been a lot of support for Thorlison. He's something of a national hero in Iceland in any case. Uh, he's a self-made, um, he, is, he is wealthy a self-made man, uh, known to be a philanthropist, and as someone who, uh, when he sold his company, uh, did it in such a way that he had to pay higher taxes than he would have had to otherwise uh, as a way to give back or contribute to the, sa the social safety net in Iceland. So he's someone who's well-known in Iceland, but I think if you look at the response on Twitter even, he's gotten a lot of support from people who have called out Elon Musk for his handling of the situation is this um, you know the kind of behavior you would expect from an experienced CEO? We can certainly chew on that. And you know what does this really mean for Twitter for confidence in Twitter as a brand? Um, are people going to look at this sort of exchange and go, "That's it, time to desert the sinking ship"? And you know Twitter has its uses. So it'll be really interesting to see how this shakes out. But just the sheer unprofessionalism of it leapt out at me. That's beyond about you know beyond sort of the other angles of the story. I just could not believe this was actually happening. Michelle, as you take in this exchange and the eventual Elon Musk response about uh, questioning a disability, <laughs> what does that suggest to you about Elon Musk, the manager? Nothing we didn't know already, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Um, like it's. It reminds me a little bit of the early days of the Trump presidency when you keep thinking, okay, surely, surely the madness will stop now. Surely we've hit the end of that particular rope of crazy. And then no, it would continue. Um, I feel like that way about Elon Musk. Every week it seems brings a fresh, what? You did, you did what? Kind of moment. And this is, this is the latest. Uh, it, it's clear that he has... The, the apology he wrote later said that he'd been he'd been given facts that were either wrong or or not relevant uh suggests a tendency to perhaps speak first and ask questions later or find facts later um this is part of a broader pattern we've seen where he just writes tweets that sometimes land him in hot water and or court um so we know that he, he often uh leaps before he looks when it comes to public comments this seems like another example except of course this one he went after the wrong target as joita indicated he 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 picked uh someone who's a bit of a national hero in iceland and now has quite an international profile because of all this uh mocking a disability is is, is I, let me count the ways in which it's problematic, except I won't because everyone here knows them all already. Mm -hmm. So it, I, everything about this 
just to me reinforces the the latest iteration of Elon Musk's brand. Elon Musk is a clown who occasionally has really interesting visions for the world and then uses a lot of public money to fund his private interests. That's who Elon Musk is. He's a megalomaniac. He is uh, someone who thinks big and then uh, doesn't pay people and doesn't pay his taxes and picks up shop and moves to different states when California wants to reap the return on the investment for giving him a bunch of startup seed capital and, you know, super self-made, even though his parents gave him a lot of money thanks to apartheid South Africa. This is who Elon Musk is. He's got his fans and he's got his people who dislike him i think you can tell by my response where i stand on elon i try not to pay attention to him but when it comes to things like disability in the workplace and when you become the ceo of a company um and become a thought leader who does have people who follow him he has his disciples so when someone like elon musk sort of exhibits what he exhibited especially in regards to that tweet that i read it shows a total lacking in whether it be big tech or whether it be a lot of powerful people and the billionaire class still failing to understand even the most like simplicity of accommodation for people with disabilities in the workplace. So I think this speaks to maybe uh, what is a closed-mindedness from Elon Musk specifically, but probably more of a general problem about disability in the workplace amongst the tippity-tippity-top brass. I also have to laugh at the irony of a guy who's supposed to be some kind of huge tech visionary not being able to fathom of any way other than typing in which someone could be communicating, yeah. tweeting, oh, doing work. Yeah, absolutely. Like, what? Absolutely. Joita, implications about disability in the workplace that maybe individually here are quite clear, but but maybe a, some broader takeaways. Yeah, I think you really talked about it in 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 some length already. Um, I think this does speak to some close-mindedness and narrow-mindedness um, on, uh, on you know by Elon Musk certainly, but I think maybe broadly speaking, it also opens up a larger conversation about whether the C-suite in a lot of large companies especially are as disability inclusive as they claim to be. I know a lot of people have said that you really need buy-in from the top and. I don't disagree with that notion, but I think it really does sort of bring to the forefront that these attitudinal barriers around disability inclusion, um, notions that a person with a disability might be faking their symptoms or exaggerating their symptoms, that they're trying to get out of doing something that they were supposed to do, it just goes to show you how entrenched these ideas actually are, that Elon Musk felt he could publicly voice them without any fear of reprisal or backlash. Uh, you know, to talk openly about someone's disability on a social media platform is very problematic. It's a violation of someone's uh, privacy. And I, I would not be surprised if Elon Musk has violated a number of privacy laws, not to mention labor laws, in doing what he what he has. But I'm not an expert on that, so don't quote me. Uh, but aside from the fact that all of this really just goes to show you how problematic it is to, 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 to fully include people with disabilities, the silver lining, of course, is that it did draw a lot of international attention. There has been a lot of support for Thorlitzen. Um, and it has, I think, in some ways, it's so egregious that I think it's brought the issue of ableism in the workplace uh, to the forefront and forced a lot of yeah. people to confront the issue in a way that they might not have had to otherwise. It's also yeah. worth noting that Elon Musk since had to go back and apologize. I am a little skeptical about how genuine that apology is because one of the things we should have mentioned is that um 
when Thorlison sold his company to Twitter, one of the terms was that he would stay on as an employee, but if he were ever let go, then he would uh, be paid out a settlement of a hundred million, a hundred million dollars by Twitter. And I think Elon Musk didn't realize that when he, for all intents and purposes, tried to fire him on Twitter, and was subsequently told, "Hey, if you if you can this guy, we're going to be on the hook for a hundred million dollars." And so, it. It, I do question whether the apology was sincere um, or if it was a way to try and prevent a lawsuit or having to pay out $100 million, but, you know, who knows? But I suppose if you if you want to consider it a learning opportunity, there might have been a teachable moment in there somewhere. Michelle, yeah, yeah Michelle, I heard some affirmations there. Go ahead. Yeah, what really jumps out to me, and this might be a bit of a rose-tinted take, uh, so feel free to call me out on that if that's how you feel, but I, I do think that this, in a way... Um, could could do good for things for the ableism in the workplace conversation. I think it's now pretty clear that a number of people are viewing Elon Musk as the blueprint for what not to do in a leadership role, how not to manage a company. <laughs> yeah. And we can add this to the list, right? Yes, it's, it's, it's particularly egregious. Most people would never find themselves in this kind of situation. But I think everything he's doing at Twitter is fostering conversations about management more broadly in leadership in the corporate world. And if this winds up being one of the issues that gets uh, reckoned with in a more meaningful way or where people are forced to re-examine their biases a little bit more, I don't see that as a bad thing. Yeah, I, so I, I'm inclined to agree with both of you, but I will again go back to the fact that Elon Musk does have his disciples. And I worry that now the disciples have learned, ooh, ableism, that's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Very fair. Like, as opposed to unconscious ableism, they will now just be consciously ableist and be like, well, if it's good for Elon, it's good for me too. Because when I say disciples, like, I, I mean it. It's disciples. Social media is absolutely, and not just the ones that Elon controls. Like, social media generally is just loaded with pro-Musk nonsense, no matter what your algorithm is. Um, so I would, I would worry that although there's some lessons to be taken away from people who may be inclined to learn a lesson this week, there's going to be a lot of other people who say, I stand with Elon. Those disabled people are a problem in the workplace. Like, like that's straight up what people yeah. are going to start doing. And that, and that oh. you're absolutely right. And that goes to, to the questions Joey had raised about what this kind of thing means in terms of implications for disabled people who are already working or for those who are trying to break in. It, it is definitely a concerning one. And I think, I, I guess... No, I'll leave it there. But I, I, okay. I agree. There are, there's, there's, I, I do see a potential upside as a, outlined by me, but your flip side is equally valid and totally fair. Yeah, but oh, I, I, again, I'm, I'm one of these people who, who understands that for every reaction, for every action, there's a reaction. Like, and oftentimes, uh, I, I find out from people in my life on both sides of them. Uh, Joita, it sounded like you wanted to respond to, to my statement there. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong, um, and I won't, I won't quarrel with the spirit of what you're trying to say, but I think the legal context is important to keep in mind, just coming right out and being ableist to someone uh, could expose an employee of a company or a manager in a company to a lawsuit, and we forget that the ADA has been around for a long time, uh, and we have, you know, we have the Accessible Canada Act and uh, the Canadian, the, the Canada Human Rights Code in place, and they've been around for a while also. So I'm not saying that the legal redress avenue is the best course of action out there. Obviously, it's not. But I think someone saying something really ludicrous and spreading misinformation or disinformation on the Internet uh, and having disciples who 
go along with that hook, line, and sinker is one thing. But when people are encouraged to say things that are clearly discriminatory, in this place, ableist, um, it does open up the possibility that a company or even an individual within a company could be facing a lawsuit. And not that I'm a big fan of suing people as a way to try and deal with social change issues, but it it is worth remembering. Okay, Joanna, Joanna, we got to, we got, we got, I got to cut you off because your internet is absolutely betraying you in the middle of that point. But uh, let's let's wrap let's wrap the convo and then uh, move on to our next topic here. Coming up next, are is renovating a government building really worth the money and time? We'll hammer that out as Ontario considers a major renovation to Queens Park and as uh, the scaffolds continue to be up at the halls of Parliament in Ottawa. This is the Now News Panel on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm, jo- I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig. Juita Gupta's internet has absolutely crapped out. So we say goodbye to Juita and we thank her for her service this morning. One more topic left to discuss and Michelle and I will go one-on-one. Ontario is taking another step towards renovations of the legislature and proposing to create a new ministry to oversee them. Legislative Affairs Minister Paul Calandra introduced a bill establishing the framework to complete the restoration. Calandra wants all politicians to have some say in the renos. It gets us started, obviously, in an official capacity, uh, but uh, more importantly, it it puts in place the framework that uh, allows parliamentarians to ensure that they have uh, a big say in how this building restoration uh, unfolds. Of course, the federal government is going through some renovations to the halls of parliament in Ottawa, so Calendra says the province is pulling from the federal government's experience. It's a unique structure that is being put to, put together, to be honest with you, and it's uh, uh, it's come about from what we learned from how Ottawa has done it, frankly, uh, some of the experiences in the UK and uh, in Manitoba. The project could take up to eight years. The price tag, an estimated $1 billion. Queen's Park is 130 years old. It features, uh, well, this is like the realtor.ca listing. It features lead pipes, asbestos in the walls, an inefficient steam heating system, old wiring stacked on top of one another, and uh, some serious fire safety shortcomings. Michelle, I'm sure you and I can both agree we should probably get people out of this death trap, but $1 billion, eight years? Come on, maybe just build them a new building, a nice shiny high-rise. Is, is, is a government building a heritage building that's ultimately worth protecting? Does that rise to the level of history that we must preserve at all costs? Is it wrong that I've got Gil from The Simpsons voice in my head going, motivated seller, as you list off all those things? <laughs> a, um, work, a workman's dream. Exactly. Fix their upper. Rock bottom prices. Um, I... I I do think there are arguments to be made about a heritage site, not necessarily, but a building of historical significance. I think so. Um, I, I, I'm i also a little partial to the Queen's Park building. It is ancient. It's super rickety. You can feel that all around you, oh, but you yeah. also do get a sense of that sense of history. Like there is a cool vibe in there. And let's be honest, every meaningful policy decision this province has seen for the past several decades have taken place within those walls. I do see some value in trying to restore those buildings. I, new, shiny, modern high-rises, 
we have a lot of those already. I don't know. I see some value in preserving something older, but I absolutely agree that like the, the need for modernization is is very pressing at this point. And certainly, my colleagues who boil to death every summer and freeze to death every winter while working in those offices there probably won't object too much to to some of those renovations. Yeah, I, I'm being a little facetious here in my tone. Certainly, when you talk about things like the Parliament buildings in Ottawa, legislatures all across the country that do have over a century of history in them, a lot of history in those walls, walking the paths of great people before you, it matters. But Michelle, where I develop my facetiousness from is that it seems that everywhere else, governments are so willing to cut red tape to allow heritage buildings and old businesses and family businesses and the history of the city to be torn down. And that's not just a Toronto thing, that is kind of everywhere. And yet when it comes to their building, no, 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 no. This is history we must preserve. I think that's a very fair point. Yeah, there is a bit of a double standard at play, especially for the administrations who are more aggressive about cutting off heritage funding and, and less interested in, in preserving those. Not all administrations feel the same way about these issues, and, and we see those policies reflected in, in various governments over time. But I think you're absolutely right to call it the double standard. And, and the step of creating a whole separate ministry to deal with this one is an unusual move. I will be interested to see how that pans out. I'm going to withhold comment until we have more of a sense of it. It's <laughs> yeah. very early days, but uh, that definitely jumped out at me as an extraordinary step in this particular case. Michelle, I've uh, had the privilege of working inside Queen Par Queen's Park a couple times over the course of my career. I'm not sure if you've ever had a chance to, to get to get into the building, but it is quite a striking place. It is it is beautiful. You can feel the history. I love anything that's built totally with stone. Totally can. Yeah. I, like, I, lo I love anything that's built with stone. Anything with stone or bricks, I'm like, yeah, that's some real construction material right there. Right. Romans like, would have used this. Right on. And there's like super creaky wooden floors. Like, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's kind of cool in there. Yes, I have been there. <clears throat> oh my gosh, excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. Have... Joita's internet's betraying her. Michelle's throat is betraying my her. Throat, yeah, no, yes. it, it's my water glass. I actually blame that one. Anyway, no, <laughs> okay. sorry. Um, I have been in there. We do have a, uh, not just to visit colleagues and, and have, they have a pretty sweet restaurant in there if you can get in. Um, but it, it is a really cool building. Um, and there's, uh, it's also just become a real hallmark feature of that part of the downtown core. Like, yeah, yeah, it's the, the city's kind of evolved around it as well. So there's all kinds of arguments to be made along those lines in terms of preserving the, the area, which there's, of course there's coming, green, there's green space, there's public parks, there's, there's lovely public, green space, there's, pub, yeah. there's public gardens, there's there's public art. Like it has become a place that is a bit of a fixture in what is a very gray, glassy, high-risey part of downtown. Exactly, and and. For all those reasons, I suspect even if the government wanted to go in the direction of a shiny new high-rise, which they clearly don't, I suspect there would be significant pushback for that reason alone, because a, a lot of Toronto has evolved around Queen's Park for understandable yeah. reasons. Michelle, we've only got about a minute left here. If I were to be part of the redesign, I would actually want there to be more public spaces within the building. I think it would be great if there were more places, more touch points between the public and politicians. Obviously, there'd need to be appropriate security <laughs> to execute something like that, but I do believe there'd be something to that, and I'm borrowing my experience from Ottawa City Hall on that front, because so oftentimes you could walk into City Hall as a citizen 
and interact with your politicians, with your representatives. And there was a Service Ontario, though, a Service Ontario, and there was a City of Ottawa service desk and a kiosk and all of these different things. There were many public events held inside City Hall that were open to the public. I would just like in the redesign of Queen's Park to make not just the exterior a public-friendly place, but all can interact with their province. I love that idea. That sounds great. And what I would like to see uh, is along the same line of accessibility to the halls of power for all kinds of reasons, not just for the public access, but for for people to take their seats in those halls of power. And, and I think that's something we really need to see, especially in the building where the first piece of accessibility legislation in this country was enacted and uh, is now coming up in 18 years since then. AOTA was the blueprint for all the other accessibility legislation in this country, including the Accessible Canada Act. Let's make that building accessible itself. And was especially supposed to govern public places like, you know, Queen's Park. Uh, Michelle. Exactly. <laughs> thank you for this. Dave. Always nice chatting with you. We will talk to you Monday Likewise. morning to kick off the week. You bet. Have a great weekend, everyone. That is Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Joita Gupta was here a little bit earlier. Joita is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio, AMI but her internet betrayed her. Coming up after the break, Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.